Hi, it's Alice, and here's Mary Jordan posing a terrific question to today's guest. If you had to guess, how many times would you say you sang If You Could Read My Mind? How many times have I played it? Yep. 4,500 times. <laughs> 50... <laughs> 4,800 times. Does it get boring? No, no, of course it doesn't get boring. It's, it's a different song every time I do it. I don't know what it is. I just enjoy singing that tune. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see That's Gordon Lightfoot if you haven't figured it out by now. He'll talk more about this song a little later in the episode. The Canadian singer, guitarist, and songwriter was a huge figure in the folk revival movement of the 1960s and 70s. He turned 84 years old last week, and despite some serious medical setbacks over the years, he's still touring and drawing crowds, and he's still writing timeless songs, as his biographer put it, about trains and shipwrecks, rivers and highways, lovers and loneliness. Mary Jordan, who by day is a correspondent for the Washington Post, had the pleasure of talking to Gordon Lightfoot here in D.C. a couple of months ago for the Academy of Achievement when he was a mere 83. I think you're going to enjoy listening in on their conversation. I know I did. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Gordon Lightfoot was born in Ontario in 1938. He became a huge success in the United States and all around the world. But in Canada, he is revered as a national treasure. I can see her lying back in her satin dress In a room where you do what you don't confess Sundown, you better take care If I find you've been creeping round my backstairs Gordon Lightfoot is in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and Country Music Hall of Fame. He was named a Companion of the Order of Canada, the country's highest civilian honor. He was once on a postage stamp, 
And to give you an idea of how enduring the Love Fest has been, he performed at the official celebration of Canada's 100th birthday, and again at its 150th. And somewhere between those, he was the featured singer at the opening ceremony of the Calgary Winter Olympics. So Canada, Mary Jordan thought, seemed like the logical place to begin their conversation. Tell me about growing up in Canada. It was cold in the winter, just like New York. And your parents had a dry cleaning business, is that right? My father was, was in the dry cleaning business. It killed them all, five of them. They all, they all died from the fumes when they were in their early 60s, late 50s. My dad died when he was 63. We knew what caused it, but nobody talked about it. It was the fumes that they had there were poisons. The fumes that they use now in dry cleaning are much more sophisticated. I worked there. By the time I was 14, I started working there. But I got out of it a truck driving a couple of years after that. But I got my driver's license. You started driving a truck? Yeah, I drove. Uh, did a linen supply run up into the uh, tourist area north of Orillia, uh, where I was born, a small town 80 miles north of Toronto. How small? 25,000. Did you like it? Loved it. I loved it. I loved every moment of it. Your mother was a big supporter of your music, right? Well, mother heard me singing myself to sleep at night. Uh, when I was about four or five years old, so she picked right up on that. And did your mother ever come in and sing with you? Well, no, she didn't sing with me, but she certainly listened to me. And she said, hey, maybe this kid's got a voice. Who were you singing? Just, just tunes, just melodies, just humming, you know, humming, singing myself to sleep. I didn't know where the, the melodies come from. They probably came from somewhere, as I recall, they were classical. She got me right into the, they were, they were churchgoers. She got me right into the choir, the junior choir. I went to Sunday school. I sang in the junior choir. I went to the intermediate choir. They followed along we, we, uh, through everything that I was doing. I was really going for it, and I got involved with with every musical thing that happened in high school, I got in. I did was in four operettas, and I had the lead in three of them. Gilbert and Sullivan. A lad, a lad, I served it as office boy and an attorney's firm. A lad, a lad, I filled the floor, and polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up the handle so careful that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. My father was, was ambivalent until by the time I was 15. I'd convinced him that I was going to try and get in the music business. Was he worried it was just too risky? Well, he thought it was just BS. You know, he just thought it was, well, this ain't the, surely not, you know. Is this kid going to, does he really want to be a singer? Well, I'd already been in the junior choir for about five years and gone to the, up and promoted into senior choir by then. I was 14 years old. Did your mother egg you on, though? Did she support you? Get you a piano or a guitar? Well, we, we always had a piano. So there was always a piano there. 
my sister, uh, Beverly, who ran my business for 10 years, she passed away a few years ago. I'm sorry. Uh, played piano, and she used to play the piano, and I used to sing, and we used to go and do, do gigs. We used to go and do, we'd sing at the ladies' uh, auxiliary, and, uh, you know. And what did you sing? What were your early songs? Well, I, if you want me to go really deep, I'll do Handel's uh, Messiah, because I sang in competition, you see, and I wanted to win, and I did win in competition. I won two years at a Kiwanis Festival, for instance, up there. Do you remember what the prize was? Uh, there was no prize. It was, uh, it was a, a, the adjudicator's marks on a page. I got 98% the second year from my... Rendition of a shepherd boy, a shepherd boy, those things, so fresh and free, upon the verdant mountainside, the joyful melody, oh joyful, out of love, oh sift but down to me, oh where are now a shepherd lad, thou happy boy like thee, thou happy boy like thee, and about twenty-nine other kids would sing the same, what I just sang. Well, that must have been a and, boost. And whoever got the highest mark from the adjudicator won the contest. So I would work going into that practicing for three or four months, getting ready for that competition. And my father had to do all the driving. And that was one of the things that, or the problem, somebody had to do the driving and none of the other fathers. By this time, I'd formed a barbershop quartet. And we were singing in competition. Uh, and, and whose dad, whose dad was going to do the driving. And my dad kept getting that job. But after he found out that I was really serious about this, mom and dad would come with us out on the, on the road uh, doing competitions. So if you asked if they were with me, they sure were. My parents were, were right there with me all the time. When I was 19 years old, I went, I, I told my parents, I got to go to music school because I want to learn how to write music. So I went to music school. Except the music school was like 2,000 miles away in California. So we found an ad in Downbeat Magazine, the jazz magazine, because in high school I was always interested in, in jazz. And I was Dave Brubeck and all those people who liked jazz. And the rest of them were doing the, the bunny hop, you know, uh, the, the Friday night <laughs> dance scene. <laughs> and we were getting into jazz already. And, and a friend and I decided that we wanted to go to school to learn how to write music because neither one of us knew how to write music. And I was already writing songs and didn't know how to write the manuscripts. And uh, I went to school and I... I I got so bored there, I, I was there for two semesters. And when I came back from that school, I knew how to write melody, how to write chord symbols. I learned how to transpose. I learned quite a bit about the piano, and I'm not a piano player. And I learned to use the piano as the basis of everything that, that you do. The music is based on the, on the keyboard. They taught me that. And But when I got back from there, I... I back to driving the truck again, you know, for the, the laundry business, you know. But I learned enough that one of the first jobs I got when I got back to 
Toronto was a job as a copyist. So I started copying scores. And by copying scores, I learned how to, how to write music. Did you, I read somewhere that one of the first things you were singing was Tura Lura, some Irish lullabies. That was my first record. Irish lullaby, I can't remember. They played it for the school through the, the school PA system during Parents' Day one day. You were in grade four, that's right, and they broadcast it through the school's public address system. The, the principal was the first guy I ever saw that had a recording machine. It was a guy that, that had a lathe, it was cut with a disc was cut with a lathe. Wow. And uh, I had never seen one of these machines before I got there. He had one in his office, and we got the music teacher in, and he set up the mic, and boom, we did it. And I had no problem doing it. I learned the song first. I'm, I'm good on rehearsing. I, I like to practice. I need to practice a lot of guitar. I have people working for me in my, in my orchestra who play a lot better than I do, and I like to <laughs> stay, keep up with them. So I practice. In the fourth grade, when that song, The Irish Lullaby, was blasting through the school on the public address system, that must have been such a thrill. It was, but, 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 but still, it, it was like, there it is, like I, I did it. It was more like I accomplished something by, by doing it with this machine. And, and all of a sudden, there it was on a, on a disc, and I had, had done it. And I didn't understand why. I, I wasn't thinking about a recording contract by that point yet, you know. How old were you when you did get a recording contract? I was 25 years old. In the early morning rain with a dollar in my hand With an aching in my heart And my pockets full of sand I'm a long way from home And I miss my loved one's soul In the early morning rain With no place to go this song from Gordon Lightfoot's debut album went on to be recorded by many other musicians. Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, Elvis Presley, and Bob Dylan, among others. Here's a little sampler of them in that same order. In the early morning rain With a dollar in my hand With an aching in my heart my old pocket's full of sand I'm a long way from home And I miss my loved ones so Where the liquor tasted good 
there she goes, my friend. She's rolling out at last. Hear the mighty engines roar. See the silver bird on high. She's away in westward bound. Far above the clouds she'll fly. Where the morning rain don't fall. And the sun always shines. She'll be flying over my home in about three hours' time. Tell me about meeting Bob Dylan. Do you remember where you met him? Because you had such a close, you have such a close relationship. Well, I met him through Peter, Paul, and Mary. They recorded one of my tunes, and naturally it went up to number five on the billboard chart and uh, I got an offer from their manager who was the, the grand the grand poobah of uh, managers in New York at the folk revival time Albert Grossman and through Albert Grossman I met, Bill, I met Bob Dylan because he had Al, Bob Dylan under contract at that point and Peter Paul and Mary and Ian and Sylvia without them I'd be nothing without Ian and Sylvia I'd be we wouldn't be sitting here they were the first entity to record my material. Now there you go, you cried again. Now there you go, you cried again. And then someday when your poor heart is on the mend, I might just pass this way again. That's what you get for loving me. That's what you get for loving me When everything you had is gone As you can see That's what you get for loving me And they too were under contract to the same person as Bob Dylan who was under contract. We were all five artists. Odetta, well, eventually the band and Janis Joplin too, the, the, the list goes on. But Dylan said that when he listens to your songs, he never wants them to end. Oh, and he's prob that's Bob having fun. <laughs> now, now, okay, so I finally did get to meet Bob Dylan in Bethel, New York, years before the Woodstock Festival ever occurred. Tell me about that. And we met at his house and we played pool. And I hit the, the lampshade with my cue. He said, Gore, what do you get for hitting the lampshade? And I got mad. I got mad at him. Why? I don't know. I, I, I was insulted. And I don't know why, because I was, I was overcome with, with, I mean, I, I worshiped this guy. You know, I thought that, that he was the, the best writer to come along down the pike for a long, long time which he was, and uh, there he was uh, having fun with me, and I didn't, I didn't like that. Did you talk to Bob Dylan about writing? A... Yes, I did. Like, what did you talk about? Well, he would play me one of his tunes, and I would, uh, I'd play him one of mine. He, he would come to Toronto with, with the band he was, he was working on. He would come to Toronto himself with his own band, and, Later with uh, Robbie Robertson and the band, and but 
he would come to, to my house there, and I would play the piano and, and do a song for him on the piano, and then he'd play a song for me and do it on, on his guitar. And did you ever suggest to each other oh, of course. anything like, hey, maybe oh, do this? Sure. Or... Oh, sure. What's your favorite Dylan song? Uh, let me think about it. The... Or just one that comes into your head. Okay, Days of 49. Days of 49. In the hands of old Bob Sad. And Jake, and Jakey, hell awake. In the days of no 49. Yeah, Days of 49 by Bob Dylan, that's my favorite one. I don't care what else you want to say because he's got about 25 huge ones, anyhow. He's got a huge number of, of hit songs. So do you. Well, I have a few, but, but Bob has. How many has songs before. have you written? How many songs have you written? About 230. You rocketed to the top. Did you... How, how was it to become so successful quite quickly? All I ever thought about was, was by this time I was under contract, all I thought about was songwriting. That's all I thought about. I got married, divorced, and stayed single for 19 years. During the 19 years, I produced most of my good work. If you get lonely, all you really need is that rainy day love. Rainy day people all know there's no sorrow they can rise above. Rainy day lovers don't love any others that would not be kind. Rainy day people all know how it hangs on a peace of mind. What were the conditions when you did your best work? The conditions, I can tell you, it was like like kinetic energy. Something was driving me. I I, I wanted some time, but it might be God uh, that was driving me. I began to find a place for. I, I'm not a religious person, but I found out where, where God lives in in me, and it's right here. In your heart. Yeah. At times I just don't know. How you could be anything but beautiful Think that I was made for you And you were made for me And I know that I will never change We've been friends The rain or shine such a long, long time. I, I had a real estate agent. I would, uh, he would find me a house that was for sale somewhere. And I'd go and use the, an empty house. To record? I'd take my, no, to write songs. I'd take my little table and my little chair and just, you know, go, go in an empty house, empty rooms, house for sale, nobody there and spend, I'd, I'd, I'd get whatever I could get out of it for maybe three or four days. I would go home at night and come back the next day, and home at night and come back the next day. Uh, 
the, the writing thing was really, really didn't know when it was going to be happening. It just, you know, it seemed to, the time just, just came. How many Somehow. different houses did you do that in? I thought maybe three or four. How did you even think of that? Well, I, I tried doing it, and I found it to be very successful. I wrote two or three of my albums uh, incorporating that kind of routine into, into going about it. Some of the stuff I wrote at home. Some of the stuff I I'd go, go, wrote to the, the empty house. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds. You know, what uh, was it? What do you think it was about a strange, you know, it wasn't your house, it was a, a new empty house. What do you think it was that... Well, I, I just, I used to, I got my, my estate agent to find an old empty house for me. Was it the energy in it? <laughs> was it the ghosts <laughs> in it? <laughs> ghosts in it. You know, maybe it did. I talk about the magic, maybe there were, you know. I know it helped because I, I got out a couple of albums that way. I think that is one of the most interesting things I've ever heard. See the man who tips the needle, see the man who buys and sells, see the man who puts the collar on the ones who dare not tell, see the drunkard in the tavern, stemming gold to make ends meet, see the youth in ghetto black condemned to life upon the street. Reaching for his saddlebag, he takes a tarnished cross into his hand. Standing like a preacher now, he shouts across the ocean to the shore. Then in a blaze of tangled hooves, he gallops off across the dusty plain. In vain to search again, but no one will hear. Do the words come first, or the music come first? It can come from from all any of those three. It can be a it can be a title. It can be a a melody, or it can be a chord progression. What song are you most proud of? Uh, Carefree Highway. <laughs> Why do you love Carefree, Carefree Highway? Carefree Highway. It's a great one. <laughs> That's one of the ones you get it from, from doing the title, just the title only. God, this sounds to me like a song title, I said, the, the little voice said. And away I went. And once it starts, it, it, it rolls. Picking up the pieces of my sweet shattered dream I wonder how the old folks are tonight Name was Anne, and I'll be damned if I recall her face. She left me now, knowing what to do. Every highway let me slip away on you. Every highway you've seen better days. The morning after blues, from my head down to my shoes. Every Slip away, slip away on you. So many of the biggest stars recorded words that you wrote. Was there just one of them that you can remember being really thrilled about? Yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, 
I think Bar Barbara Streisand's version of If You Could Read My Mind, I heard her coming through the room one night at a party. I was at a, at a party one night, and I heard Barbara's version, and I really loved it. It filled the room. Of course, her vocals always fill the room. If I could read your mind, love, what a tale your thoughts could tell. Just like a paperback novel, the kind the drugstore sell. When you reach the park where the heartaches come, the hero would be me. But heroes often fail, and you won't read that book again because the ending's just too hard to take. That song has been talked about, and everyone knows the lyrics of that song. But it's the one that goes over the best in a, in a, with the crowd. What, why do you think there was such resonance with that one? Everybody can relate to that. It's about the giving and taking and losing. and It, 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 uh, it gets into the territory that, that piques interest. It's got the, the ebb and flow. It's got the, the roller coaster of life. Uh, involved in it. It's got, uh, it's the way it blends with the way people are feeling, I, I suppose. The way I feel when I sing it, because when I sing it, I know I'm not afraid to, to hit that song uh, as, a so, as a solo, actually. I have a, a, a great arrangement with my orchestra that uh, I also, I, I can play it just by playing the guitar. You've said that your lyrics have forward movement, for momentum. What is that what makes great lyrics? That's a terminology that came into my thinking about only about 15, 18 years ago, maybe. Forward momentum, yeah, what is it that makes it go through and not have it reach a certain point where it loses or becomes boring? And you start saying, the people uh, are going to like this song, and that's where I started thinking forward momentum. They're going to listen to it like all the way through. Your songs are often said to be story songs. Yeah, yes, I, I, some of them are. Some of them are. The Edmund Fitzgerald certainly is. A lot of people on, uh, went down with that boat. You know, it, it seems like probably that the, the, the Edmund Fitzgerald would have been got, forgotten about within about two or three days. It would have been just, that would have been the end of it. And having the means of doing so and what I had learned from that point of, uh, about writing and doing all that stuff, I had a melody and I had some chords, but I didn't have any words. And so... All of a sudden, the lyric crept in, swept in. So were you in Canada when you heard about the sinking of that ship? I heard about it. I went down for a coffee at 11 o'clock in the evening, and I, I heard about it on the television. They reported it just a couple of hours after it happened, that the ship had disappeared off the radar. 
And uh, I started writing right then, and I, I had it written within a couple of days, and we were going into recording sessions. And we got it out and did it, and we didn't do it right. I went home and I changed it. Do you remember what you changed? Yeah, I changed my, my storyline. I had to to put con use some conjecture in the song. There are certain things that are mentioned in that song where I could not have been there. And I, I had hoped that my conjecture would be taken well, which it was, but the mothers whose sons were in charge of the hatch covers that night who would come to our shows. In the Great Lakes area, they'd come out to our shows, and it, it, it wasn't our boys that caused this to happen. They found it to be an insult. They're, 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 the accusation was for the hatch covers not being secured. What caused it to happen? Well, the, the ship broke in half, is, is what happened. And uh, what, whose fault was that? Well, see, that was the, the, what, what was beginning to, people were, were beginning to find fault. Right. So finally one of the guy's mothers convinced me to change it, at least for concert. I said, I can do that, and I did, I changed it, but not by much. So do you remember what it was and how you changed it? Yeah, it was, it was uh, at 7 p.m. a main hatchway caved in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. That's the cook talking. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m. a main hatchway gave in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in, he had water coming in. Good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. This is conjecture. I can't be there. But I'm writing this song. I have it in, in uh, by this time, in, in perfect chronological order, from beginning to end. So that's what I said. It's 7 p.m. It grew dark. It was. It's a, I'll tell you how I changed it. I changed it to, at 7 p.m. it grew dark, it was then. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. Removing the, the main hatchway caved in. And from that moment on, I never sang that song. I sang it a thousand more times on stage after that. And I always said, instead of the hatchways. And when I met that guy's mother, years later, she, I talked to her the day she died on her telephone, on her cell phone, that kid's mother. Wow, wow. And she, why was she so grateful that you took that line out? Because her son was, was a 21-year-old sailor who was along with, her, with one of the other women who complained about this, and I don't blame them about this, this hatchway. Her father was a, a hatch keeper. And both of them, in the newspaper articles, they said it was a, a hatch cover that, ga that gave in, that caused the ship to sink. And, and you uh, didn't want to cause any more pain? I said, I wish that I, I didn't cause more pain. I said to myself, 
I'd hoped I, would, I wouldn't do that at the time. But it did. It caused people pain, writing that song. I wrote it as a folk song for an album. Nobody knew. Nobody knew that it was going to become a, a popular song. In a musty old hall in Detroit, they prayed in the Maritime Sailors' Cathedral. The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the legend lives on from the Chippewa down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. So let's just talk a little bit about, you've had some health problems. You're, you almost died in 2002. You had the AAA abdominal aortic aneurysm, and you were in a coma for six weeks. Surgery, three months in the hospital. Did it change you? About two days after I woke up, I called my music director and I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to look through the in-studio footage. And I found enough good stuff in there to make an album. So I packed them in the studio. I'm recovering. The recovery took 19 months. They're in the studio working. They're bringing me the stuff while I'm still in the hospital on cassettes so I can listen to the work that they've done through the day overdubbing parts. Trouble don't mean nothing to me And I had my share of it Heading off on a river of light Being a part of a river at night Nice to be on a river at peace In the cool of an evening Heading off on a silver moon you love to work. Well, that, there was a job to be done. Because I had a band and I had an orchestra and, and, and I was going to have to figure out what I was going to do to keep, keep on making a living. But you surely had <laughs> money by then. No, 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 no. Was that, Fat City was long behind me by this point. Fat City for me was all through the 70s. That was Fat City. And then what happened? We work more and work more and earn less and who cares? You're working. I love, I love to, to sing. I love to play the guitar and sing. I, I can't help it. <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot usually finishes his concerts with this song, Canadian Railroad Trilogy. So it seems like a good one to play as we wrap up our episode. There was a time in this fair land when the railroad did not run. In the wild majestic mountains stood alone against the sun. 
He wrote it in 1967 for Canada's centennial. It celebrates the epic construction of the Canadian Transcontinental Railway, and it was a song that Queen Elizabeth told him personally that she liked. In fact, Queen Elizabeth, who established the Order of Canada, once bestowed that high honor on Gordon Lightfoot, and while he says he's never been big on accolades, it's one he's particularly proud of. I forgot to bring my, my pin. From the Queen? Yeah, and I wanted to have my have that, but I forgot it. It's in my other jeans. It's in my other pair of jeans at home in Toronto. You you keep it in your jeans pocket? Yeah, there, I, I took it out of it, put it in my jeans last night when I found it on my suit coat in my closet. I was looking for it because I was going to wear it. Well, maybe he'll wear it at the concerts he's got coming up in December. Nine of them in California and Arizona, and then 14 more in the spring scheduled so far. Next year, when he turns 85, he plans to cut back his schedule to only 60 performances a year. We'll see. Happy birthday, Gordon Lightfoot. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is generously funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you, as always, for listening. We're moving too slow.